to cross, you know, two, three or four countries even and go and look for this uh, ideal. People, I mean, this is a difficult situation. The people do not do it because they want to. It's because they feel like uh, they don't have a, an opportunity in their own place where they live. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this month's episode of Global. I'm your host, Lucas Jensen. On this episode of Global, we take a look at Guatemala. Just 23 years removed from a 36-year civil war, Guatemala has faced a great deal of challenges in the post-conflict era. One of the biggest issues affecting Guatemala's democracy is corruption. However, Election Day is just around the corner. And on June 16th, Guatemalans will go to the polls and make their voices heard. You'll hear from three Guatemalan experts today who will talk about corruption, the elections, and migration. You'll also hear us talk about the Northern Triangle, and this is a region that consists of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. We're also going to be looking at the positive impact that U.S. involvement can have in terms of building these democratic structures. Our first guest is Patricio Gajardo, IRI's resident program director in Guatemala. Our second guest is former U.S. Ambassador to Guatemala, Stephen McFarlane. And our third guest is Adriana Beltran. She's a director for Citizen Security at the Washington Office on Latin America. Here's Patricio Gajardo. Patricio, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. So Guatemala still has the wounds from a civil war that started in 1960. To set the stage for our listeners, could you just walk us through what led to that conflict? Well, it was really in the 1980s when they uh, finalized the conflict that they had for so many years. And the lessons learned from that is, of course, all Latin America went through was to adapt and become more democratic at the end of those uh, civil wars or dictatorships that uh, all the continent basically went through. In the Guatemalan example, it's very different also from other countries in Latin America because it has a, a very extensive um, indigenous population that suffered uh, mainly uh, with this civil war. And, and that, those wounds uh, from those years, they haven't, I think, healed uh, the way that we thought that they were going to be at this point in time. Okay. So what happens when these wounds are left unreconciled? How does the conflict still affect Guatemalans in their day-to-day lives today? I think that the, now that there's no war, basically, the wounds are still open because the governments that they have been in, in, in Guatemala, they have not been able to produce impact on the everyday lives of most of, the, of uh, Guatemalans in, uh, in, in the everyday. There's still a lot of poverty for the everyday person to have a good transportation system, good jobs, uh, good education, good health uh, system, all those things have decreased, and and we need to make things better uh, in the future, of course. Could you expand on those everyday challenges for Guatemalans? We we tend to think, you know, that life is really easy for us, uh, looking at it from the first world context. And, and for example, for people to 
this is a, a direct experience that I had uh, recently. And I was buying, you know, like a sandwich uh, outside of uh, this uh, little market in, 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 in Guatemala. And one of the security guards that guards this area uh, was telling me, you know, that uh, for him to go to work, it takes him almost three hours in a motorcycle ride back and forth. So it's almost like six hours. So he has, he has to get up, you know, like at three in the morning so he can be there at six in the morning and then leave uh, after two days being there for another three hours for 80 quetzales, basically, let's say $20. So those $20, basically, for a two-day work, he cannot afford even a sandwich in the store that I was basically buying something for me. And the everyday challenges that these people have in those countries are, are that. How does corruption play in all of this? Corruption uh, is at every level at every level of society. It's kind of like a copy. You see somebody not being put in jail because they were able to pay the lawyers or the judges for them not to go to jail. So the corruption issue is more like uh, if I see, you know, that the big guy, that nothing happens to them, I can also do it. So it's kind of like uh, the example that the politicians or the big business people do it in their own country basically is, is something that we can do it also. Although if uh, a person, you know, from the countryside, you know, steals a chicken, that person will get, you know, five years in jail. Hmm. Uh, so those are, wow. the things, those are the things that are so unjustified and so irregular that we, that we think, you know, that the process of corruption at the end of the day it needs to be checked by countries like the United States or the, or the European Union, for example, to say, you know, um, we need to change. This is not working. Now let's pivot just a little bit here because we've got elections coming up on June 16th, presidential and congressional elections. Could you talk a little bit about the, how corruption uh, has played out in the various campaigns, how how have um, candidates focused on this issue? What are the messages that are coming out? Well, unfortunately, the 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 pre-election process has been focused more on who is really going to run or not, instead of uh, ideas or or proposals of what my government is going to do for the people. People in general. Uh, do not know very well what the um, what the people or what their candidates are really offering uh, to change the status quo at this moment. The Guatemalan system has a lot of political parties, but really weak political parties in their own uh, at the root of the of the system. They they're not very organized uh, in in that sense. It really, really doesn't matter really how many parties sometimes you have. The thing is that the way of the, the consensus building is also lacking in, in, in the Guatemalan politics. So either if you're the right, the left, or the center of any in the political spectrum, uh, what is needed in, in, in Guatemala is uh, a better process of uh, communicating better and having uh, objectives, uh, national objectives, that will put Guatemala ahead. Well, let's switch our focus here to another issue important to Guatemala that also impacts the United States, migration. Mm -hmm. To start, could you talk about some of the factors pushing Guatemalans to make the difficult decision to leave their country? 
The first issue that I would like to say is that people in general do not want to leave their place, where they were born, of where they have their families, where they have their friends, uh, and where they have basically all their life. That's the, the, main, the main issue. And people at the end of the day, when you see either surveys or when you talk to people, what are the main issues that people flee the country or go out of their countries are mainly economic reasons. And secondly, violence or criminal, criminal activities in their own towns or places where they live. Those are the two main issues. People want more. People are not satisfied anymore uh, on, on just having a tortilla and having something, you know, to eat, but they want more or better health systems, better roads, better education, uh, and people see what others have. People say, why I do not have that? Why I don't have, you know, a way of going to school that is not going to take me two hours to walk to school? All these uh, attractions um, that... Uh, maybe the United States or even Mexico uh, or even um, even in their uh, in their own country uh, at the capital city they have the people migrate people will say this is not for me and that's the issue that we need to uh, to tackle is at the end of the day is make sure you know that the the governments of these countries will basically uh, provide uh, as many things as possible at least a job so people can feel comfortable that they can are, are be are, are able to give a good education and have a good uh, good health system for their children and for these children to grow in they don't want to take I will I will tell you uh, this trip uh, in a caravan or to cross you know two three or four countries even and go and look for this uh, ideal. People, I mean, this is a difficult situation. The people do not do it because they want to. It's because they feel like uh, they don't have a, an opportunity in their own place where they live. Right. In response to that urgency, then, what are some of the immediate steps that the new government will need to take to inspire Guatemalans to stay in their country? The first things they need to do is to, to call for uh, a national dialogue. And, and to have at least some type of uh, um, idea or invitation of the actors that are not going to, of course, uh, win the presidency or the, munis- the municipalities, etc. But they will have to be responsible in saying, we need to have everyone participate in the main issues of our country. Uh, I know this is kind of like rhetoric. Uh, sometimes it may sound like that, but I think people need to understand at the end of the day, or at least the, the, the people that are going to govern, they have to understand that they, they cannot do it alone, that they will need the support of everyone in the country to take their country ahead and, and make it more uh, prosperous uh, in the future. Well, Patricio, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your insight, and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. Next up, I talked to Ambassador McFarland. Ambassador McFarland, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, I'll just start out with this. It seems like Guatemala still has wounds from the Civil War, one of those being 
large-scale corruption. What was your approach to combating corruption, supporting anti-corruption efforts in the country as ambassador? Well, I, my, I actually started off, I had a previous tour in 2000 to 2003. I was okay. deputy chief of mission. I was also okay. charge. But I gave an interview locally, and I, I shared mm-hmm. our concerns, the, the growing public perception of corruption. And mm-hmm. boy, the government just <laughs> exploded. Eventually, the president of Guatemala said, well, you know, the, you know, the, the embassy is right. Uh, so I think the first that uh, points to the first thing is that there has to yeah. be discussion of it. There has to yeah. be acknowledged. And that, uh, in turn, uh, demonstrates the, the real important role of a free press. So that's, that's I think, the first thing. Um, uh, I think the second was also when I was, uh, a year later when I was charge um, essentially decertifying Guatemala on counter-narcotics. Mm-hmm. I think that was an important uh, step because it it showed that, yeah, we understand we're in a difficult situation here. We need cooperation from the host country. But the fact is, if your performance is, uh, is this poor, we're going to call you out on it. And so I think that points to another uh, important uh, implement, which is uh, some kind of sanctions and some kind of willingness to um, call out your partner, keeping in mind that you know you still need to try to find a way to work with them. Mm-hmm. As ambassador, um, so it, in a way it was in a way it was easier. The challenge was greater. Mm-hmm. Um, the expectations were greater, in part because of CCIG, but um, mm-hmm. in in many ways it was. It, it, it was um, uh, much more feasible to make progress precisely because of CICIG, CICIG being sure. the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, mm-hmm. headed by a Spaniard at that time, Carlos Castresana. And uh, CICIG and the U.S. Embassy and several other embassies, there was a sort of a, a critical mass there of mm-hmm. uh, uh, foreign diplomatic support. That said, the U.S. Uh, in Central America is usually considered to be the uh, um, first among equals when it comes to f- uh, foreign embassies, and people really want to know mm-hmm. what the American embassy thinks. Yeah. And I think that's also a, a great tool. I think it's a, like any tool that can be misused. You want to make sure you don't, you're not too heavy-handed. I found one thing that helped me a lot in terms of trying to weigh in on issues of corruption, mm-hmm. of human rights, of reconciliation. Uh, of even uh, trying to to uh, have a, a, a more adequate uh, tax burden mm-hmm. was the fact that the U.S. was carrying out activities that, that did not look selfish in, in the least. Mm-hmm. And so this is a, sort of a case of using soft power to leverage hard, harder power. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, feeding programs. We have scholarships. We have all sorts of things that we do. And then also I... Uh, Led the embassy and really trying to get out what, outside what I called the, the diplomatic bubble. That was, those are some of the, the that was the overall environment. What we actually uh, had to do in order to improve the uh, anti-corruption uh, environment was to be very aggressive. Uh, this was primarily CCIG and the U.S. Embassy in terms of the monitoring the process of selecting uh, new. Uh, appellate judges and Supreme Court judges mm-hmm. and constitutional court judges. Which in-country actors benefited the most from the corrupt environment? The, without, without actually naming names, you probably have a, a uh, small 
quantity of people who directly benefit from having you know, either personal control or access to the fruits of personal control mm-hmm. of, say, uh, judicial appointments, prosecutorial appointments, um, the ability to sideline investigations. Mm-hmm. And they can then sell this. You have other people who I would say are sort of in the middle. They could support anti-corruption uh, policies if they felt like it, but they could also decide, um, you know, this is this is too hard. I'd rather just stick with what we know, and what we yeah. know is we'll go to we'll go to uh, Mr. X, and for a price, he'll deliver the solution we want. So mm-hmm. I would say those are some of the people that uh, the kinds of people that benefit. I would say narco traffickers definitely benefit mm-hmm. from it. Okay. It gives them um, just more room to operate in. So the people, those are people benefit. People who get hurt, I would say, are regular Guatemalans because yes. corruption operates like a uh, like a tax. Mm-hmm. It's a tax that that uh, also skews the provision of goods and services, mm-hmm. and so there are fewer goods and services being provided. This and and it uh, it affects, among other things, um, uh, security, and it, it certainly affects the uh, Guatemala's ability to invest in in uh, the countryside, mm-hmm. which is the source of an awful lot of uh, migration to the United States. How does this election cycle compare to ones that you've seen previously? This is unique. It's um, mm. unique because two of the major candidates were eliminated for um, legal or constitutional reasons just a little over a month before the elections. Mm-hmm. So that that is, by itself has uh, never been seen before. And so now the question is, you know, who's going to, to get those, uh, those votes? Um, I think the, the, other, the other question is really whether the, whoever wins, and it's not just the president, it's mm-hmm. the Congress as well. The Congress really um, has great power both in controlling the purse strings as well as in this Congress, the current Congress uh, that is outgoing, will actually get to select uh, the, the next Supreme Court. Oh, wow. So there's, there's a lot riding on this, and um, it's unclear whether you know, the, 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 the victor will really um, be prepared to take on some of the issues that some of us uh, who've been watching Guatemala for a long time see that uh, the country is facing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so those would include the, you know, the immigration, security, corruption. Sure. I just want to pivot a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Could you expand some on the utility of U.S. investment in Guatemala? Why should Americans care? Why should we be involved? That ultimately is the question mm-hmm. that every diplomat assigned uh, needs to answer is... Mm-hmm. Um, why does this make a difference, and why should uh, taxpayers back in the United States um, cough up their money to do this? I would say that if you have no assistance and if things don't go out well and Northern Triangle countries uh, start to break down, you're going to have uh, even more migration to the United States, Hmm. uh, even uh, less control over the migration. You're Mm -hmm. going to have much more in the way of uh, counter-narcotics going up to the United States. Sure. And in general, you create a vacuum in which other forces 
can emerge. And we've talked a little bit about uh, narcotics trafficking, but ultimately, uh, if you were to talk, for example, about what happens to the region if you cut off all U.S. assistance, mm -hmm. I think long, medium to long term, um, it's China that decides to, to, to offer to play uh, a helpful role. I, I think that would be uh, really bad for the Central Americans and for the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one reason that I'm not, a, not, not in favor of cutting the assistance. But what do you get? I think a couple things to keep in mind here. One, as much as we've, we've given, we have not provided the kinds of assistance that would probably allow us to resolve the, the problems that drive migration and organized crime and gang violence. We have provided enough to show what can be done and to try to develop institutions mm -hmm. that can uh, take on this work. Yeah. For that to really take off, though, you need a combination of continued uh, U.S. political support, hmm. not just economic support, and you also need a certain amount of buy-in from the host country, including its government and the political and economic elites that are not in government but have a great deal of influence over it. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, that's the kind of thing you, that you'd need. The things that we've done, though, we have, in fact, uh, in, in a number of places, been able to improve citizen security. So in much of in Guatemala, and this is, of course, the Guatemalans doing the, the heavy lifting, but the United States provided uh, some critical support. Mm -hmm. uh, the homicide rate has gone down from being somewhere, I think, in 40-something per 100,000 to down into the low 20s. But it actually has gone down. Not all of that is because of the United States, but I think the U.S. played a role. Per capita GDP is uh, getting higher and higher. I think CAFTA played a big role in that. That said, the distribution of money is uh, extraordinarily unequal in Guatemala. We've been able to also support the you know, things involving uh, reconciliation, democratic elections, public health. And some of these things, uh, some of the things we support, are go, they, may, they may sound odd, like uh, there's the Moscamed program that goes after the Mediterranean fruit fly. Hmm. Uh, it's assistance, but it's very much in the U.S. interest to try to keep the, the fruit fly out of the United States. You try to keep it quarantined. Those are some of the things that we've done. Okay. And I want to go back to the, the factors that play mm -hmm. into migration. You mentioned organized crime. Mm -hmm. What are the other push factors that are leading Guatemalans to leave? Mm -hmm. The biggest factor uh, pushing Guatemalans to leave is sort of the economic system itself. And okay. this is an, there's an important point for, the, for Americans here. We see what's happening in Guatemala, where Guatemala is uh, sending, instead of maybe 200,000 people a year, it's sending 300 and maybe 50,000 a year, and increasingly more families, more children, mm -hmm. fewer single men. And we see it as evidence that something's broken. Hmm. A lot of wow. Guatemalans would actually see it as, as well, you know, this, maybe it's not what we want, but it, this, is, this is what the system does. The system cannot absorb all of the new labor that comes onto the market every year. Mm -hmm. And it is understood that this is a pressure relief valve for right. Guatemala. So you have Guatemalans who, who leave, and in return for leaving, they send back money. Right. So Guatemalans who really want to earn money, the United States is beckoning. And of course, the, 
the economy here is a big pull factor. But the fact is, in Guatemala, the minimum wage is somewhere around $400 a month. That said, that's only for the, you know, the more formal part of the, the economy, which is about 30% of the, the labor force. So it's also true that about maybe, I think, somewhere between 50 and 56% of the population is living on $2 a day. You could, if, you know, even if even if you were able to get the minimum wage, and people are are happy when they have those jobs, uh, you could make that over a weekend as a as a roofer yep. in the United States. Right. So the money is thing. I think the second thing is the the sort of short term humanitarian disasters. The weather always varies, and you'll have dr- frequent droughts hmm. in Guatemala. And when you have the drought. It's ugly. I remember carrying a uh, a little girl, uh, taking turns carrying a little girl from a farm where the uh, U- uh, USAID finance child malnutrition program had talked with. You know, we talked with her parents when we were carrying her to uh, the, the station. She only weighed nine pounds. This is a two-year-old girl, so this is about forty percent of what she should weigh. I talked to the parents uh, about it. You know, mm-hmm. they, they have a small, you know, they had a, like a hectare or two of land, uh, no rains, very little food, and they had uh, four or five older children, and most of them boys. And the very cruel logic of this is, you take care of the older children, particularly the boys, because they're going to be able to help you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the girl is uh, out of luck. That's the kind of thing that can uh, set people up to decide, well, things are so bad, we might as well try to go to the States. Mm-hmm. So you have that. You have the violence as well. I think the violence is not the main driver in Guatemala. I think the main okay. ones are the, the sort of the requirements of the economic system and responding to humanitarian disasters. Mm-hmm. But you have that. You have another driver, and I, it, it, it might be more of a pull factor than a push factor. Yes. You have enough people who've been exposed via relatives, friends in the United States, and, of course, social media and, and TV, that they, they know there's a world out there where if you work hard and obey the rules, you can have a great life. Mm-hmm. And they can't see that happening in Guatemala. They can see it happening for themselves in the United States. So that's one of the tragedies of corruption, is once again it prevents people from being able to envision a future for themselves in their own country. In your opinion, what needs to happen for the region to become self-sustaining and um, thriving? Mm-hmm. That that is a great That is a great question, and I think whoever can best answer that probably ought to win a spot at the State Department. I would say three big things. There has to be shared responsibility between all of them and the United States. The U.S., of course, has some responsibility for narcotics because of the demand for cocaine here mm-hmm. and heroin. The second would be the uh, shared contributions, where contributions aren't just uh, monetary. People are going to have to get out of their comfort zone and that, I think, will be uh, really important. And then finally, I would say the uh, shared consequences of noncompliance or of failure. If people are not really doing uh, yeah. what we think they should be doing, then we need to look at individual sanctions. We need to look at group sanctions. We need to look at the various options we have under trade agreements, under support f- uh, for loans at uh, international financial institutions, et cetera. 
we need to uh, decide how serious it is and then make decisions accordingly. What's at stake for the United States is not just trying to control migration or trying to control narcotics, both of which are, I think are very important. I think the, the two other th- big things there are trying to prevent a vacuum which other countries from outside the Americas might try to, uh, to fill. Mm-hmm. And for, for me, and this is a, more of a personal one since I've uh, served twice in Venezuela and have close personal connections there, uh, is trying to avoid it becoming another Venezuela. Venezuela was much wealthier than Guatemala than, and thought it had a much stronger political tradition than Guatemala 20 years ago when Chavez was elected. And one has to ask yourself, why did it happen? And why did people continue to support him as long as they did? Right. It was... Uh, a couple things. There was uh, economic downturn, and most importantly, there was a consensus among people that the institutions and the two main political parties were hopelessly corrupt. And why not vote for somebody like Chavez who talks good and says he'll do better? Hmm. Why not do that? And that is the danger. The people who oppose corruption because supposedly it's uh, a plot to push Guatemala into a Chavez or Maduro type government have it 180 degrees wrong. Hmm. Uh, Anti-corruption is what will keep you from going there. Ambassador, thank you very much. Thank you. Finally, we heard from Adriana Belcher. Adriana, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. In Guatemala right now, we have elections just around the corner. So in your opinion, how does the average Guatemalan engage in the democratic process? What have you seen over your 20 years of involvement in the country? That's a good question. Um, I would begin to say that much of Latin America, there is um, a decrease, unfortunately, of support for democracy. In the case of Guatemala, uh, support for democracy has hit its lowest level in the last 12 years. In fact, it is a country that ranked the lowest in support uh, for democracy in the region. Much of this, I believe, has to do with the political party system in Guatemala and the little faith that Guatemalans have uh, on political parties. The political parties are extremely weak. Uh, They're short-lived, and essentially they're uh, more electoral vehicles that are organized around specific individuals rather than around a type of political ideology. You know, I think according to the last La Pop survey, about 6% of people um, identify with a political party. So these are essentially uh, machineries that engage with the population at the time of the elections through very clientelistic means. Now, do you think a new government can help spark political engagement, right? Can they reconnect with the populace in a way? You know, I think this election in particular, there's a lot at stake right now. Several years ago, Guatemala was seen as an example of 
just tremendous amount of progress that had been made in trying to tackle endemic corruption and impunity in the country and trying to figure out how to bring about real uh, change and transformation. Unfortunately, over the last two years, the situation has changed dr uh, dramatically to the point that a lot of the progress that had been made um, is starting to be dismantled. And what you've seen over the last two years is really a strong effort by a number of sectors, including the current government, to figure out how to regain uh, the lost space, so how to regain control of the spaces that they have lost. And that's what's at stake with this election is, will the country be able to continue that down a path of reform and strengthening of the rule of law, or are you going to see you know, the status quo you know, down a path of potentially just becoming a fragile state overtaken by criminal interests. Now, a couple of big candidates in the presidential elections have been removed from the race. Could you just expand a little bit on this for us? Sure. On what is um, exactly going on? That, you know, this election, um, and I was just talking to a reporter about this, has been, you know, of all the elections that I've observed, there's just a tremendous degree of uncertainty because at the end of the day, no one's really sure who's, who's going to end up in the ballot. A lot of issues have been taken to the courts. Um, what, you know, when in Guatemala they cut the judicialization, so um, everything is kind of being resolved in the courts. But to your to your question, there have been about four candidates that have been barred from participating in the presidential race, and that includes two of what were the top three contenders. That is Suri Rios. So Suri Rios is the daughter of uh, former dictator Efrain Rios Montt. She was barred uh, from participating in the election uh, by the Constitutional Court, which ruled that the Constitution does in fact prohibit anyone who came to power by force from running for president. And that ban extends to relatives. The other top contender you know, that was removed from the race was Selma Aldana. And in her case, it was more the result of just this vicious campaign to prohibit her from running for office. Selma Aldana is a for the former attorney general. She uh, worked very closely with the CICIG, the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, which is an international mechanism created in 2006 to help the country investigate and dismantle criminal networks that infiltrated the state institutions. As attorney general, she led many of the emblematic cases against corruption high-level politicians, former military, security officials, and very powerful members of the business community. She was responsible for the case against former President Otto Perez Molina of a huge corruption scheme involving the Customs Department. He was, you know, forced to resign and is now awaiting trial. And with her, you know, there was a big campaign that pretty much started before she even officially declared her candidacy. Uh, but in March, when she officially registered, the Electoral Tribunal at the end rejected her candidacy, citing that there was an arrest warrant related to an accusation that had been made by a member of Congress who she had investigated. Now, she was uh, in El Salvador at the time, still outside of the country to this day, but she appealed the case, and at the end, the Constitutional Court also denied her appeal. There's been a lot of questions around it because the arrest warrant was issued the day before she registered, and the judge responsible for the arrest warrant is now under investigation for allegedly taking a bribe. 
There are other two candidates that have been barred. I won't mention the two, but one I will because it is illustrative of the extent of collusion between organized crime and special interests. That's the case of Mario Estrada. He's a candidate from the center right who was arrested in April in Miami on drug trafficking charges. Essentially, uh, you know, Estrada had offered the Sinaloa cartel from Mexico access to the country's ports and airports um, in exchange for funds for his political campaign. You know, he had also discussed with the Sinaloa cartel uh, the assassination of two political rivals, um, one of which was Tel Matana. I, I kind of want to walk it back because you mentioned how these elections are a little different than previous ones you've seen and how Guatemalans are feeling about democracy in general. A lot of times we can see voter apathy manifest right before elections. So could you kind of dive into this for our listeners? How exactly are Guatemalans feeling? of the population, given, you know, how the electoral process has played out, there is just a feeling of a lot of uncertainty. You know, I would, I should clarify that there is a new electoral law. So there were a series of reforms that were passed that applied to this election. And unfortunately, you know, some of the decisions that the electoral tribunal have made have been questioned because there is, um, a lot of the decisions that the tribunal have made have not been consistent, particularly with regards to, you know, candidates that should or should not be, you know, allowed to, to run. Now, what are some other things, you know, final things for folks to watch for in these last days of the campaign? A couple of things. I would say, you know, now with uh, the two top contenders, Suri Rios and Telma Aldana, out of the running, you know, we're looking to see how, you know, where those votes that would tend to go to Suri Rios or Termaldana, where they end up, how they end up uh, being distributed. I would say that it is very likely that there will be a second round, and that could shift things also depending on who ends up, you know, in the ballot by, by August. The other issue that has gotten less attention is uh, Congress. So these, you know, in addition to being presidential elections, you know, also elections for all the seats in the legislature and municipal elections. And in Congress, I mean, you're looking at 20-plus parties that are running for office. You've seen the number of individuals that have very questionable backgrounds that have been allowed to run. There was a recent article in the local press citing that, you know, about 150 candidates that are running for Congress have been cited for irregularities. That ranges from charges, you know, receiving suspicious contracts, um, some involved in illicit activities. Um, In a more positive note, you do have some new political parties that are participating in this elections, one of being the Movimiento Semillas or the Semilla Movement. This was a party that emerged from the mobilizations from 2015. It was a party that Telma was running with, Telma Dana was running with. They've kind of uh, have stood out during this process uh, because they've tried to follow or you know set up their party in a very transparent way. Um, so just to see in terms of how they, you know, fare out at the end of the day um, after the election. What do these elections mean for the Northern Triangle? Many eyes are on Guatemala and what is going to happen there. Um, you know, there's a lot of concern because there's a lot at stake uh, for the country, you know, and if, you know, the country goes down the wrong path, 
Um, if you see the dismantling of all the progress that had been made and much deeper co-optation of the state by criminal interests that will have repercussions for neighboring countries um, for efforts to you know, address transnational organized crime and other illicit activities. And it um, will, at the end of the day, also have an impact on, on the United States um, because sure. of what it could mean for addressing many of the drivers or root causes of, of migration. Big thanks to all of our guests for joining us today. It was really great to hear all these unique perspectives. This episode really focused on a few different themes and highlighted the role of U.S. involvement on several issues, one of those being migration. On our next episode, we will discuss migration and how the influx and outflux of people groups impacts democracy around the globe. In particular, we'll unpack some of the dynamics we've seen from migrants moving from Syria into Europe as well as an outlook for Latin America as they grapple with Venezuelan migrants. Be sure to review us on iTunes, give us any feedback, and connect with us on Twitter, at IRIGlobal. Until next time, I'm Lucas Jensen.